Thank you, Debbie. One week. There's one week left of regular season baseball. I mean, you know, most years that would feel sad. This year feels merciful. All right, let's just put this season out of its misery. It's been a rough year to be a Cardinals fan. Mediocre pitching. The team can't handle the basic fundamentals. I mean, one part goes well. The other parts fall down. For a team base that's used to winning, it has been rough, hasn't it? But we have to admit, I mean, most of the other teams try to win too. I mean, there's always like the Pirates, but you know, most teams actually do put in an effort. And they're the ones that won this year. Every season comes with difficulties and obstacles. Sometimes a team will overcome and emerge victorious. Sometimes they don't. Well, like we say, some, day, some days you're the windshield, some days you're the bug. It's not always easy. The truth is, life as a Christian is also a difficult thing. We're trying to overcome our own sinful natures. From inside, we have this war going on with temptation, with that pull towards sin. And even with God and His Spirit living in us, it's not simple. Day in, day out, it's a battle to live a Christ-like life. But it's not just that internal battle. At the same time, all around us is a society that is happy for us to do anything but follow Christ. They will, perfect, they will tolerate any behavior except righteousness. They will tolerate any desire except one for holiness. And whether it be small or indirect nudges away from God or significant and direct commands to reject Christ, Christians have felt that pressure all the way back to the time of the book of Acts, even up till now. We have never been free from it, within or without. So against this backdrop, we come to the last book of the Bible. Folks, we finished the Bible today. Has it been fun, you know, doing book by book? Yeah. A couple of you nodding, you know, about, about the same percentage that I got in first service. <laughs> Don't worry, the rest of y'all, your names will feature next week. No, it's, <laughs> no it, it's been interesting looking at some of these things. And finally, we come down to the book of Revelation. And Revelation is thick with imagery. It causes great difficulty in understanding because these images, they require significant understanding both of the culture of that day as well as the Old Testament. It's not stuff we deal with now. You've got to put on your historian hat. And on top of that... The overall message is very easy to understand in Revelation, but the details cause a lot of confusion. You know, usually, if the details are confusing, the rest of it's confusing. But Revelation's the type of thing where if you get down with a microscope, it will drive you nuts. But if you take a step back and look at the big picture, it's a piece of cake. So it's weird. Not. You know, that's not enough, though. Revelation also gets misused by poor teachers. There are those who like to abuse this book for, because it makes for very sensational messages. You can write books and sell them. You can get, make all sorts of 
all sorts of money beating Revelation half to death. So that just leaves us confused. And there's not even unanimity in in theological circles about when or why it was written. The traditional view of the book is it was written about the year 90 to a church that was experiencing significant persecution. You know, in the Roman Empire, right about that time, there was major persecution going on. But you may once in a while run across someone and... I'll tell you, even a Bible teacher or two that I greatly respect had this view. I don't buy into it, and I'll explain why. They had a view that's called preterism, where they hold that Revelation was written about the year 62. And it was essentially somebody standing there watching Jerusalem fall, and they're kind of writing it out for Christians. And I've got, the rabbit hole on that goes pretty deep. I, I don't really have the time to go into it much. But I've got a real hard time with it. Because in order for that to be true, Jesus has to make several return visits. And on top of that, in the the 60s, the church was predominantly Gentile. There were Jews, but it had long since become mostly Gentile. And a Gentile Christian is not going to have a whole lot of worries about the city of Jerusalem. Yes, Jesus lived there. Yes, a lot of Bible history happened there. But our faith does not rest there. To a Christian, the temple is a historical curiosity, not a focal point for our faith. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for one book of the Bible, particularly the last one, to be wrapped up in what happened in a place that doesn't really matter for us. So I don't hold to that. I just mention it because you might run into somebody who's like, well, it was really written in about 62. That's what's going on with that. They can make a good case for it, but I just, I, I can't buy into it. One thing we got to keep in mind with Revelation Do you see the words Rand McNally anywhere on the page? Revelation, friends, is not a roadmap to the end of the world. Sorry to burst your bubble. If you came in here wanting to know exactly what's going to happen, you're going to walk out of here wondering exactly what's going to happen. Because I tell you, it, it just can't be a roadmap. One reason for that is, uh, you ever get directions that's obviously missing a piece? Go here, make a left at the old barn, turn right where old Johnson's filling station used to be. And then all of a sudden you're, you, know, you realize that the directions have you on a road that you have no idea w- w- how you got on there. It's a problem. Revelation does not detail every last bit of what is going on. At one point, there are what's called the seven thunders speaking. And and John is told, John, you don't write that down. If this is a roadmap, we are missing significant chunks. So it's not a useful roadmap. And on top, you know, even with that... The timeline is bizarre. There's multiple apocalypses in the book of Revelation. It goes quarter of the world, third of the world, all of the world. If it's a road map, that's weird. You're covering the same territory time and again. 
And if it's a roadmap, it's also ultimately not useful for the recipients back then. Because if you're a Christian and you're living about the year 90 and you see your brothers and sisters in Christ, they get accused of being a Christian. They're hauled in before a magistrate and said, recant Christ and sacrifice to the emperor and we'll let you go. And you've had some friends who have done that and you can't really understand it and you're a little... you're, you're, you know, the relationship isn't the same anymore, and then you have other friends who stood firm and were executed. What good is it to be told, okay, in 2,000 years, here's how it's going to go? What good's that going to do you? Are you going to be around in 2,000 years? Uh-uh. It's of no use to them. It might as well, if that's the view of Revelation, it might as well be a time capsule. Do not open until... Future date, and it's amazing. The future date is always about five or ten years after the dude writes the book. It's almost like he wants it out there just enough time to cash in. Sorry, that's my cynical side talking. No, friends, in Revelation, there is a message for all Christians from all times, which it can't be if it's a road map. It's got to be something else. You see, Revelation recognizes a problem. It's a problem that's always existed for God's people. But it proposes a solution. It promises a solution. A permanent, eternal solution to the problem. And when we recognize that that's what it's doing, we avoid the confusion. We find a real hope to keep us going. So remember that problem. We are under pressure, pressure from within, pressure from without. And Revelation opens with visions of Jesus coming in as a conquering king. I mean, you're not three paragraphs in before you're getting good, solid, thick biblical imagery. And then we start seeing letters to churches, to specific cities. Much like the one here in the first part of chapter 2 to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember that imagery I was talking about? There you go. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The pressure on Christians is shown in how Jesus compliments and critiques these churches. As he's writing to them, we see that pressure. We see things going on. We see promise. Now, we don't necessarily know every detail of these letters. For example, we're not even sure if these are written intentionally and specifically to just these seven churches or if these seven churches encompass their kind of stand-ins for the whole of Christianity. 
You know, they are called out. These were actual cities that had churches. They're all located in the area of Asia Minor, which would have been the part that John would have known well, would have been not particularly far from the island of Patmos, where he would have been. But at the same time, remember, images. Think in images. You see seven of something. In the Bible, seven is always an image of completion, totality, perfection. So seven of something gets, my, gets the gears in my head turning. And I think, well, you know, okay, he could be addressing specifically these churches. And in so doing, addressing all of us. But we're still not sure about some things. For example, these Nicolaitans, nobody knows, nobody's got any clue what they were up to. That is not something that was recorded for us. The Nickies were apparently up to no good, and Jesus did not like them. Now, you know, that's, a, that's the part that, you know, you hate their works, and I hate them too. You know, th- does that sound like the nice little Jesus who's always cradling the sheep in the photos? You know, all we know is that they were opposed to, something, to, to Christ somehow. But all through these letters, there are common themes. Faithfulness is commended. Endurance is noted. They find it easy. They're not finding it easy going. And I tell you, if you ever say, you know, it's not easy being a Christian. The world is against us. The entertainment out there, it's a mess. The government, sometimes you wonder if they would do anything differently if they were actively trying to do something to us. In small ways and large ways, man, it's, it, it isn't easy out here to be a Christian. But I tell you what, friends, Jesus sees. You are not out there doing it, wondering, man, does anybody even notice? I will give you the answer now. Absolutely, God takes notice. All throughout Revelation, whenever God's people are suffering, God sees. Whenever God's people are persecuted, Jesus takes note. Friends, our struggles do not go without notice. And there is a promise of blessing to those who hold true. Each of these letters ends with something to that, to the tune of that. It, to him who overcomes, to the person who overcomes, you will receive eternity. The right to eat of the tree of life, you won't be hurt by the second death. So things like that that indicate. If you overcome this world, if you stay true, God will reward. And later on in Revelation, there's images given of believers suffering. In chapter 11, two witnesses of God are murdered. In chapter 13, there's beasts. Man, people love the beasts. It's good, vivid imagery, the beasts. Well, horns doing things and... I mean, it gets weird. You start reading this, you're like, man, what was John on? Did he get hold of some of those mushrooms? Because it feels that way. But what he's doing is drawing from images elsewhere in the Bible. A lot of that beast imagery goes back to the second part of of the book of Daniel. But you want to be really, really, really cautious about identifying anything in our current day as the things we find in Revelation. 
Theologically, that's what we kind of call, this is that. Here's what it is there, it must be that. That's pretty irresponsible. Because I tell you, friends, I can point out things in Revelation, and I can say, well, this is attack helicopters, and this is main battle tanks, and I can make that stick. I could sell it to you, but it's not a responsible way to interpret it. John is seeing things, and when he sees these images, when he records them, he's rec- what he, these images point less to the physical reality and more to the character and nature. You know, when Dan read the thing about the, 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 the heavenly creatures that have eyeballs all over, boy, wouldn't you like to have to buy glasses for them? Remember a couple of weeks I said I needed new ones? I got them this week. Got them yesterday. Progressive lenses. This is my life now. And I tell you, I got to figure out something else to do with my sermon notes. Because as I look down, they're like distorting. This is weird up here, folks. I got to get used to it. Yeah, those of you who've been there, you know what I'm talking about. But... Uh, Getting old up here. I even had to explain calling cards, you know, the phone telephone cards to a sales guy at some place yesterday. He was 25. He had no notion of having to call home from a payphone long distance. If anybody needs me, I'm just going to be out at the beach walking off into the surf, staring into the distance. I mean, it's... (sighs) But when we see these images... They're vivid, they're strange, they're weird. Those angels with all the eyeballs, friends, a lot of eyes means they see everything. They are aware. So these creatures that are praising God, they are aware of everything. It's not that they're literally covered in eyeballs, it's that they know what's going on and they're praising God. And this beast that we see in Revelation, interesting thing, a lot of times when we see the beast, we think Antichrist. That word Antichrist makes no appearance in the book of Revelation. It is not there. Now John is the one who wrote that word in his letters, so he knew of it. It does not get used. So anytime you see somebody like, well, the Antichrist has to come and this and that, folks, they're taking some liberties that, that, that's not in Revelation. Again, we're not looking at a road map. And that number, 666, oh, we love to play with the number 666, don't we? The number seven in Bible, remember, completion, totality, perfection. Number six, you fell short. It happens three times. Man, brother, you couldn't buy a good decision, could you? You dealing with some character issue, a character that is completely and totally short of God. There's a lot of parody of God all throughout Revelation, you know, where, where Satan tries to ape the things of God but doesn't quite pull it off. This is an example of that. He tries to be like God, but he never can. Has nothing to do with the scanners on the box of food, friends. It ain't the 5G on your cell phone. It's a character that is completely opposed to God. And when you see things with names, like you'll have a name on you. You remember Toy Story, the movie? 
The doll Woody, you know what was on Woody's foot? You remember that? Anybody remember that? The name Andy. Why? It was Andy's toy. Any of you ever do that with your toys or anything as a kid? You know, maybe your stuff as an adult. If you got tools, you know, guys, power drill, you write your name on it. This is my drill. If we have God's name written on us, who do we belong to? Correct. God. So if we have God's name written on it, we belong to him. If you know, Jesus sometimes is referred to as having a name written on him that nobody knows. That means nobody owns him. For he is the king of kings and lord of lords. See how this stuff type starts to work. The world in Revelation is also actively persecuting Christians even unto death. That's what was happening in the Roman Empire then. Friends, that happens today. Our brothers and sisters in Eritrea, you think they care what happens to them if they're throwing, into, throwing them into shipping containers? If Christians die in there, they think that's a feature, not a bug. We've had it easy, friends. I think what we're seeing in our world is a reversion to the mean where stuff gets back to normal. There's continual pressure, over, whether it's overt and hostile or subtle and seductive, to draw Christians away from Christ. And we even see that at work in our world. Friends, this is the standard background for what happens to a Christian. It happened right after Peter gave the speech, repent and be baptized in Acts 2. It happened in these seven cities. It happens today. It will happen until the day Jesus returns, friends. The problem is the same as it ever was. We live in a world hostile to Jesus. His calls to righteousness are offensive. We cannot dress up Jesus and package him in a way that will have people saying, you know, Jesus really is good. Because they'll like him right up until Jesus starts making demands. Just like the people that followed Jesus. They loved him when he fed the 5,000. They thought he was awesome when he healed the sick. And when he said, leave it behind and follow me. What's this stuff? Be holy for your father in heaven is holy. What? We like Jesus right up until he makes a demand. And on top of that, his death on our behalf, it's a stumbling, stumbling block because we're not able to do it ourselves. And that runs counter to what we humans say. Ever since we learn to talk and we start walking, what do we yell at our parents if, we want to do so, if they're trying to do something? No, I want to do it myself. The cry of a two-year-old with a gallon of milk in his hand and the bowl of cereal on the table. And you know how this is going to end. With a mop and a trip to the store for more milk. And you're just hoping it's not six bucks when you get there. No, I want to do it myself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. No, I want to do it myself. You can't do it yourself. You're offensive. Exactly. Friends, the existence of Christ is offensive. 
And as Jesus pointed out, the world hated him, it will hate us. We may not be crucified for him, but we are going to feel it. We are going to suffer. Some way, somehow, we will suffer for his name. You belong to Jesus, congratulations, you're going to suffer. That's not really a selling point most of the time, is it? How do you think it would work if, you know, some airline, fly United and suffer. I mean, we know that's what it means, but I mean, they're, they're, they're not exactly going to lead with that. Come to our hotel and feel pain. No. Bring your family to our restaurant and understand the meaning of suffering. You know, I mean, that never happens. You know, the world is trying to sell us on something beautiful. But in Christ, we have to embrace the cross and suffering. You know what? Mixed into this. I'm not just here bringing bad news. I mean, yeah, I get to bring bad news, but I'm also bringing good news. Mixed into all this are images of God being ready and willing to act on behalf of his people. In the midst of all of this stuff going on, God's power is poured out. That's why you see those cataclysms, a third of the earth, or a fourth of the earth, a third of the earth, all of the earth, because God is defending his people. God acts, friends. It may seem that evil is given free reign, but the day is coming. Now that imagery, it stays thick. It is not easy. You know, at one point we see 144,000 people gathered in heaven. And Jehovah's Witnesses for a while said, only 144,000 people are going to be saved. Because they didn't understand imagery. Number 12 stands for God's people. 12 tribes of Israel. Twelve disciples. Take twelve, multiply it by twelve, multiply it by a thousand. You're sitting there, yeah, I didn't know there was going to be math. Hey, at least it's easy math. I mean, 144,000 might be super gross math, but it's not hard. Okay, about three of you got that one. The rest, the rest of you after church, ask the people who groaned. Twelve times twelve times a thousand in chapter 14. That's God's total people. All of them. Twelve, God's people. Twelve, God's people again. A thousand, whole lot of them. Multiply it all, God's, all, all God's people there with him. So yeah, you're still working with that, with that image. And then you get into chapter 21, 22, and you see heaven, a city. It's got twelve gates, twelve foundations. That number twelve popping up again. Not because God likes a good, solid foundation, but because God is pointing out this is his people. And bridal images also dominate the last couple chapters of Revelation. We come to chapter 21, and if you've ever attended a funeral where I've been speaking, you've heard this passage. I use it all the time because to me, friends, these verses in chapter 21 or why we keep going. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Friends, this isn't talking about a physical city. You know who the bride of Christ is in the New Testament. That is the church. That is God's people. You don't dress up a city as a bride. That's just weird. But that image of, this, of, the, of God's people descending, prepared as a bride for her, for her husband. Let's play with that image for a minute, because to me, this is one of the most beautiful images that we find. This hit me one, one year, a few years ago as an international conference on missions, and I was just in a main session, and the, guy, the, the, the speaker mentioned this, and it just got the wheel turn, wheels in my head turning. I didn't hear another thing he said, because I was, my mind was just working this image over. I've even preached a sermon in St. Louis Christian College on this image, and I'm going to give you a little bit of it now. The morning of the wedding. Ladies, you remember when you got married? Those of you who've been through that. How long did it take to get ready that morning? Five, ten minutes? Oh, no, 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 no. If you count, in, count up all the time that went into it, how long did it take you to find just the right dress? The one that sang to you. The one that when you put it on, all your friends were like... Ah, and you look at yourself in a mirror and you're like, yes. How long did that take? May have taken, you know, hours and hours of appointments. Some of you might have been a first dress, but probably not. Took a while, didn't it? And then it's not just the, the, okay, the morning of, here comes the makeup. No, 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 no. You've got to have appointments. They have to, you know, beforehand, they have to figure out, oh, now what are we going to do with this, honey? Got to figure out just how to put your hair. Got to figure out how to do the makeup, you know, hours of that. And then the morning of. The morning of the wedding is usually pretty easy for guys. I mean, we got to throw on the tux, but a tux is easy. I mean, we, we tend to sit around and just do stupid stuff, play video games or whatever nowadays. And then, you know, while the ladies, they got to be up and at the church and getting ready at like 7 a.m. And they're in there for hours. I mean, it's even to the point where I have to tell, when, when I do a wedding, I, I always warn them at, at, at the uh, rehearsal. First service, we had Chris Thomas, you know, Gina. And Gina's husband, and Gina wasn't feeling well, she wasn't here, but Chris was here, and I said, Chris, you remember this? And he's like, oh, yeah, I remember you saying this. I always warn them, eat something, ladies. I don't have to tell the guys to eat anything. They got boxes of donuts. Always have to tell ladies, ladies, eat something, because you got a stressful day. You're going to get up early. You're going to have all this stuff done. And if you're standing up here while the preacher's going on and on, love is nice, and by the time we get to the vows, you could just shout timber and, you know, two of the bridesmaids can be laid out. Lack of blood sugar and all that, just bam. Because I don't like to bounce the maid of honor off the stage, I always say, eat something. 
Because they put in a lot of time. And you know what? How many, ladies, how many times, other times in your life have you put in that much effort into how you look? I mean, we guys know y'all take forever to get ready, but you never take that much time again, do you? On that, morning, on that moment when the doors open and here she comes and you hear the music, here comes the bride, her dress, her makeup, her hair, everything absolutely perfect. I'm going to brag for a moment. I did this in first service too. I, I got a beautiful wife. She's, I, she, uh, the moment I saw her ever and ever since, every time, I just go. I know some of you guys are like, no, mine's prettier. No, she ain't. Mine's better. But I tell you what, the moment that day we got married here in this building, December 30th, 2005. We didn't do any of that stuff with the groom doesn't see the bride before the ceremony. We're practical sorts. We did the photos. Oh, man. Absolute knockout. And she's pretty, but holy cow. My favorite photo, and I will sometimes, I mentioned this in first service, so now she's heard it. First service, I had to say, she hasn't heard me say this before, but you know, now she has. Sometimes I'll go and look at our wedding photos, just because. Wow. And ladies, I'll tell you, do not worry about the extra couple pounds, about the wrinkles, about whatever. When your husband looks at you, he sees you as you looked on that day. You're picking out all the imperfections. He doesn't see them, ladies. When he tells you you are beautiful, when he tells you you, you look amazing, he's not saying that because he has to. He's not saying it to be nice. He's saying it because it, is, because it is God's honest truth and he will swear upon every Bible in existence to that. So next time your husband says that, and gentlemen, you better be saying it. If you don't say it, we're going to have a talk. Believe him. That moment, the most beautiful she's ever been. Friends, on that day, when here we are with Jesus in person, we will be perfect. Those sins, those temptations that have plagued you your entire life, that you wish would go away, that you cannot ever get rid of, that are always in the back of your mind, they're going to be gone. And sometimes we as Christians don't get along, and we have arguments, we have disagreements, we throw fits at each other, we throw tantrums. I mean, it never ceases to amaze me how childish sometimes God's people can be. You know what? We will all. Be perfect. We will not have to spend eternity avoiding these people because we don't like them. Friends, we will all be finally perfect and ready on that day. Finally, it'll be done. Finally, we will be ready. Finally, we will truly be in every sense, in every possible facet. We will be the people of God. Perfect, there, for Him, present, eternally, guaranteed. Great, I just made her cry. I need to get used to having little ones in. Friends, the day is coming. 
God's people, finally complete and perfect, present with him for all eternity. And these views of heaven are still wrapped up in images pointing to Eden regained. That, that thing that we've been missing ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit, ever since they got kicked out. Never again having access to the tree of life. Friends, that access is regained. And if you ever ask my dad, he considers the tree of life. He says it's got to be a coffee plant. I say don't get your theology from an engineer, but, you know. (laughs) Friends, that which we have been missing, we will have again. You want to know what it was like to walk with God personally in the afternoon? You're going to know. The effects of the fall completely cured. The the close relationship between God and humanity reestablished. What exactly is heaven going to be like? I tell you, I don't know. We joke about, you know, the podium out front of the pearly gates with St. Peter standing there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's not going to be like that. It's useful for jokes, but I I, I don't think that's exactly going to be it. But I think all this stuff points to the character of heaven more than the detail of heaven. Again, remember, images. Think character, not detail. Perfection. The foundation is precious jewels. That's how God looks at us. We are his precious jewels. We're not just the people he has to take. We are what he values. How rich is a city that it has gold streets? That's how valuable we are to God. And we will be with him eternally. What is ahead for the people of God? Victory. Now I mentioned, you know, there's places where we disagree with a lot of fellow Christians. You know what we all agree on? Friends, we're going to win. We're going to win. Satan ain't going to win. This contest between the Lord of heaven and the great accuser, it's not going to go down to extra innings. It's not going to be won in the last moments. Friends, this has been settled. It has been won. It is done, finished, complete, end of story. We're going to win. It's going to be a blowout. Satan's not even in the game. I mean, the pictures of Revelation, there's never a struggle. It's always Satan gets ground into paste. I mean, it's like a hamster against an Abrams tank. The tank barely notices. Friends, God's people are going to win. The wicked will be judged. The powers and principalities behind their actions will be punished. There will be no more death or sickness or pain. The symptoms of this fallen world will be destroyed right along with it. They will have no place in the next. The illnesses that destroy our body. The diseases that destroy our minds. The evil that has plagued us, it will be destroyed. God will make all things new. I mean, we're not just talking about that knee isn't going to bother you anymore. We're not just talking about, 
Grandma will finally be in her right mind again. Friends, what, what will life be like without temptation? There won't be then. There won't be any. You know how long the prayer list is in heaven with all the Christians there? It's empty. There's no maladies. There's no troubles. There's no problems. Because God has put an end to all of it. What was Eden like? Oh, we're going to know. What will it be like to look upon our Savior's face? We're going to know. We will be present with God and all those who have served him. So when we talk revelation, don't get caught up and distracted by details. I mean, the details do mean things, but we can get derailed by them. Because like I said, they're not easy. I don't even understand all of it. I don't say that to make myself sound, well, of course, I, I don't even, I'm so wise. No, I'm just, I, I've studied this stuff. I know a lot of it, and even I don't know all of it. I don't know of anybody who has ever studied Revelation in depth who knows all of it. One of my best teachers ever, Bob, Dr. Bob Lowry of Lincoln Christian Seminary, I was in his last class before he went on to his reward. He never even finished grading our papers. I am absolutely certain Bob walked through the pearly gates just laughing. <laughs> I didn't finish grading their stuff. <laughs> he had a good sense of humor. But the cancer was ravaging him. He wrote a book on Revelation. And even he would say, I don't understand it all. If you're trying to understand it again, think character, not particulars. We're talking figurative imagery, imagery that's not native to our time, to our place. So it's going to be hard. But keep the main thing the main thing. You know what the main thing is? We win. Say it with me. We win. Who's going to win? We're going to win. Why? Because of what Jesus did for us. We win by doing what Christ told the churches. Overcome. We stick with him. Don't get seduced by the world. Don't give in to the pressure. As long as we are with him, we're going to win. We're not going to win because we do great things. We win because he did great things. And all we got to do is stay on his side. Sometimes people talk, well, God's on my side, God's on my side. No, God isn't on our side. The question is, are we on God's side? If we are in Christ, the answer is yes. The message of revelation to us, as John had these visions, as he wrote them down, as he sent them to people who are under pressure, he's telling them to be firm in Christ. All that stuff in those letters to the churches about overcome, overcome, overcome. Friends, all we got to do is stick with Jesus. Until death profess his name. Whether we have a long, comfortable life or whether it is short and painful. Whether we come down to our deathbed surrounded by our family, whether we are taken from this to meet him in the air, whether we, we are executed by people ordering us to recant. We need to be firm in Christ. 
Because only by staying true to him will we overcome. Only by overcoming the world will we have a place in the next. And I guarantee you, friends, the next one's coming. This does not say when it's coming. I hope it's soon. I love verse 20 of chapter 22. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And John responds to that saying, Amen, come Lord Jesus. And that has been the refrain of our brothers and sisters in Christ under the Roman Empire. It's been the refrain of our brothers and sisters in Christ for 2,000 years. And it will be until Jesus comes again. We see what this world is doing and we say, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Why? Because we know what's going to happen when he does. We're going to win. We're going to be with him. The day is coming. Stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this message of hope. It can be difficult to understand, but Lord, we know it's a message of hope. If we are in you, if we belong to you, if we overcome, Lord, we will be with you. We pray, Father, that you would keep us until that day. You would help us to stand firm. You would help us, give us the strength to reject the seduction of the world. To stand firm in those times when they're pressing us. So, Father, we can be there on that day. So we can see your face. So we can be with you for eternity. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.